Two things before we get into the sermon. Number one, uh, I just want to clarify that Michael was not joking about the ugly sweater being required for Wednesday night when you come to the meal and Bible study. If I'm the only one wearing an ugly sweater, I'm going to be a little upset. <laughs> Especially because my ugly sweater is so ugly that it has a turtleneck. Yes. Ugly Christmas sweater. That's true. Good point. Uh, so again, I'm going to be disappointed if I'm the only one. All right. Uh, two, I just want to thank uh, the members of the church who stand up here before you and read scripture and pray and who serve in this body. It's, uh, it's not easy, easy, even with a room full of people that we know and love and that are family. Uh, and so I'm just very thankful that so many members of the church are so willing to participate so that you don't just hear my voice all the time. Open with me to Matthew chapter 6, please. Matthew chapter 6, we are continuing our sermon series in the Lord's Prayer. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Bible in the pew in front of you, the black Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible home with you. The big numbers in your Bible are the chapter numbers, the little numbers are the verse numbers. So we are going to be in Matthew chapter 6. In last week's sermon, we saw how Jesus teaches us to address God when we go to him in prayer. We are to refer to God as our Father if we belong to God. If we've been adopted into his family, we call him Father. This week, this morning, we're going to see that there's a little bit more than that. This morning, we begin to look at the six petitions, that petition, just a word that means things that we ask God for, six petitions that Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. You'll notice carefully, if you look at the text, that these petitions can be divided into two categories. The first three petitions are what we call the Godward petitions. We pray for the name of the Lord to be uh, hallowed. We pray for his kingdom to come. We pray for his will to be done. And then we see the second set, which we call the provision petitions. This is where the petitions that we ask God to meet are, are things that begin to focus more on us and our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Now this morning, we're only going to be focusing on the second half of verse 9. Hallowed be your name. But you are still welcome to read along with me silently as I read all of the Lord's Prayer to you this morning. Starting in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Amen. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning. We know that we will not be able to rightly communicate with you. We will not be able to rightly approach you in worship unless your Holy Spirit empowers us towards that end. We are desperately in need of your great grace, and we rejoice to know that one of the sweet promises of the gospel is that you will give us just that. And so we pray all of this in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. What comes to mind when I say a person's name? 
What if I were to say the name Blaine, for example? When I say Blaine's name, everyone in this room immediately begins to think of certain qualities, characteristics, attributes of Blaine. You think of his personality, his physical build, his gait. You may even think of past experiences that you've had with him that shape the way you understand the person of Blaine. The first few things that came to my mind as I was preparing the sermon when I thought of the name Blaine were athletic, fun, outgoing, teachable, humble, silly, twin, right? Blaine speaks a certain way. He moves a certain way. He looks a certain way. He works a certain way. Blaine has certain strengths and weaknesses that are unique to him. And these are the things that come to mind when I think of Blaine. The same thing is true if I were to say another name like Carlton or Ursula or Bubba. You begin to think of certain things, certain characteristics. A name in one sense serves as a sort of summary of a person. All of who they are is captured in the name by which you know them. And the same thing is true of God. Last week in our first sermon on the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to address God as Father. That's a title. But this week, we learned that Father is not all of who God is. There's more to God than just being a Father. The fullness of God's identity is found in His name, Yahweh. I don't know if you've spent much time thinking about the name of God. You know, God is not God's name. That's just a title that we use to refer to God. Neither is the word Lord, which comes from the word Adonai. It's a title that conveys respect, but that's not his name. His name is Yahweh. If you read your Old Testament, you'll see the word Lord in all capital, L-O-R-D. And anytime you see L-O-R-D in all capitals, what you should know is that underneath that in the Hebrew is the actual name of God, Yahweh. We have L-O-R-D capital because of a long tradition of superstition that came from some old Jewish guys, but you should know that his name is Yahweh. If you want to understand what Jesus is teaching you to pray in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. You need to understand the name of God and what it means. So with that in mind, the first point of this morning's sermon is the name of God. The name of God. We first encounter God identifying himself in this way in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, we remember that God met Moses in the burning bush and he commissioned him to go back to the Israelites, go back to Egypt and redeem his people from slavery. And one of the first few questions that Moses has for God after he receives this commission is, uh, who should I tell them sent me? And this is how God responds to Moses. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. You should know that the name Yahweh is built on this I am language that God uses to reveal himself in Exodus chapter 3. I'm not a linguist, and the best linguists in the world don't really understand exactly the etymology of how that came to be, but they are sure that that is the case. It's all built on this I am language. 
But that's not very helpful for us because most of us don't understand what God is trying to communicate when he refers to himself as I am. So that's what we're going to consider first. In short, this I am language refers to God's aseity, to his aseity. Now, I know that when you hear a word like aseity, you may begin to tune me out. I don't know that word. This already sounds like it's going to be boring and academic and esoteric above my head. But whatever you may be thinking, I want to encourage you to stop thinking that. I want to encourage you to not give yourself a pass on the next 10 minutes of this sermon because we're going to be talking about a concept that's foreign to you. I want to encourage you to put on your thinking caps and dig in with me to try to understand who God is, even if it requires a little elbow grease and brain power. When theologians refer to God's aseity, what they are referring to is his self-existence. His self-existence. This is what makes God, God. It's what makes him different than anyone and anything else in the universe. Think about everything in the universe. It all had a beginning. Even if you're not a Christian, you, you believe that there was this big bang, right? There was a thing that exploded, right? There's a kind of a beginning point. But not God. God didn't have a beginning. Everything else in the universe is in need of something outside of itself. But not God. God doesn't need anything. Everything else in the universe is in the process of change in some slight way. Even the rock that just sits there and has the winds of time blowing over it will soon be transformed by that wind. Everything is in the process of change. You never step into the same stream twice. But God never changes. Everything in the universe will come to an end, except for God and the things that are wrapped up in God. And this is what we mean when we refer to the aseity, the self-existence of God. Now, if you don't remember the word, that's fine, but just remember the concept. You see this self-existence, this complete and utter eternal independence. When God reveals himself to Moses in the bush, the text says that the bush wasn't consumed. It says, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Well, how is it possible that this bush was on fire, but that it didn't waste away? In order to have fire, you need oxygen, you need fuel, you need combustion. But God's fire didn't need any of that, because he was completely self-existent. That is a picture, a metaphor of God's aseity. And this is the idea that is most powerfully communicated by God when he refers to himself as the great I am. He never was. He never will be. He just always is. He is perpetually in the present. And that is not true for anyone or anything else in the universe. And because of this, because of the godness of God, he is holy, which brings us to point number two, the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Oftentimes when we use the word holy, we think of someone being morally clean, right, without sin. And that is most certainly part of what holiness means. 
But in the Bible, you find that the word holiness has a much richer significance, a much deeper meaning than just without sin. In reference to God, it means that he is altogether separate, that he is set apart. He's different than us. He's beyond us. He is utterly distinct from us in every single way. Listen to the way the Bible connects these two themes together. 1 Samuel 2.2. There is none like the Lord. Holy is his name. Isaiah 40.25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Hosea 11.9, I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. God is saying, I'm not like you. I'm not like you. I'm not like anyone. I'm not like anything. I'm altogether separate. I am holy. And when we say that God is pure, we don't just mean that, excuse me, when, when we say that God is holy, we don't just mean that he's pure. We mean that he's pure in a way that no one or no other thing is pure. He is in a completely different category of purity. When we say that God is love, we mean that God has a kind of love unlike any other love that exists out there. He has a holy love. When we speak of God's sovereignty, we don't just mean that he's all-powerful. We mean that he's all-powerful in a way that no other person or thing in the universe is. No earthly king or ruler in the heavens has ever known or experienced the kind of power that God possesses within himself. He has a holy power. And the same thing is true of God's aseity. When we say that God is self-existent, we don't mean that he's self-existent in the same way that a rock is. You look at a rock and you think, oh, that doesn't need anything to keep going. But that's not true. There is some sense in which a rock actually needs something to survive, like a place to rest. But God is self-existent in a completely distinct and different way. And because of that, he is holy. Thomas Watson, the famous Puritan, has noted, famous to some, I guess, has noted that holiness is in itself not an attribute of God. When we talk about the attributes of God, we typically list his holiness, but the truth is, is that holiness is a word that we use to describe the reality of who God is in light of all of his other attributes. God is loving, wrathful, patient, just, omniscient, omnipresent, and so on in a way that is completely other. Philip Graham Ryken has said it like this, everything about God is holy. His love is holy. His wrath is holy. His law is holy. His words are holy. His works are holy. His people, people are holy. The way to summarize all of God's holiness is to say that his name, which captures all of who he is, is holy. So when God reveals his name to us, Yahweh, he is revealing himself to us as the eternally self-existent great I am, the holy God of the universe. Now, if you're still with me through what I think was probably the thickest part of the sermon, I think you're close to understanding why Jesus is teaching us to ask God to hallow his name. So let's keep going. The word hallowed is not a word that we use very often, is it? As a matter of fact, I'd venture to guess that the only time we ever use the word hallowed is when we're praying the Lord's Prayer. 
which is a little strange considering the fact that we may not even know what it means. So we're praying words that we don't necessarily understand. In short, Jesus is teaching us to pray that the name of the Lord would be treated with reverence. That's what hallowed means. Hallowed means to keep holy or to make holy or to uh, recognize the holiness of something. We use this when we talk about hallowed ground. We say this is hallowed ground or we're saying that this ground is sacred, it's set apart and we recognize that. And so when Jesus teaches us to pray that the name of the Lord would be hallowed, he's teaching us to make sure that his name is reverenced in the earth the way it should be. That it is acknowledged as holy. So, do you think that the name of the Lord is hallowed on the earth? Do you see the nations of the world hallowing the name of God as they ought? Is the name of Yahweh kept holy by the creatures that he has created? The answer to that has to be no. And this is why we pray. In praying this prayer, we're asking God to make sure that the most exalted name in the universe the name above all names, the name that captures the fullness of the attributes of the godness of God, that that name would be glorified, honored, and reverenced amongst the peoples of the earth, even those who spurn and reject it. In Isaiah 57, the Lord makes the simple declaration, my name is holy. And when we pray this prayer, what we're doing is we're asking God to have all the creatures of the earth respond to this declaration with a hearty and heartfelt yes and amen. So, now that you understand what Jesus means when he teaches us to pray these words, hallowed be your name, I want us to dig a little bit deeper into what this means for our lives. Okay, so point number three, prayer priorities. Prayer priorities. Consider the way Jesus teaches us to pray. You should know that God very much cares about us and our needs. He cares about our physical needs. We see that because he teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He cares about our spiritual needs because he teaches us to pray, forgive us of our debts and lead us not into temptation. But you would do well to notice that the first thing that Jesus teaches us to pray for is God. The first three things, as a matter of fact, are all God-centered. We're meant to pray for his name being hallowed, his kingdom coming, and his will being done. You see this same kind of God-centeredness, the same kind of God priority in the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you've ever noticed it before, but the first four commandments are all about God. No, no other gods before me, no craven images, don't take the Lord's name in vain, and honor the Sabbath. That is, set this day aside especially for the Lord. The last six have to do with our fellowship with man. Honor your father and mother, do not commit murder, do not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, do not bear false witness, don't covet. I may have mixed the KJV and NIV version of those commands, but you get it. Even when Jesus summarizes the law, in his ministry, he says, love God and love your neighbor. But you notice that love God comes first because it is the priority. In the same way, when Jesus gives us our prayer priorities, the name of the Lord being hallowed is at the very top of the list. 
And it's not merely meant to be checked off and then moved past. It is the thing that guides the rest of the petitions. It is the most central petition. That's the reason why it's first. It should tinge all of the rest of the things that we pray with its righteous stain. Now, I think that there's a way for you to hear what I'm teaching you this morning and to completely misapply it. Okay? Let me tell you what I mean. It's possible that you can walk away this morning thinking, okay, I get it. I paid attention. I know how to pray now. When I pray, I'm just going to make sure that I pray about God and His stuff first, get that thing kind of out of the way, and then I'm going to move on and I'm going to pray about me and my stuff after. What I want you to see here is that Jesus is not merely trying to get us to pattern our prayers correctly. He's trying to get us to rightly orient our lives. I don't think Jesus is necessarily concerned if you close your eyes and pray that you make sure that you pray his stuff first and then your stuff second as if the order really matters to God. I think the most important thing that Jesus is teaching us here is that our whole entire lives which can be seen and expressed, all the things that we care about can be seen when we pray, that all of that should be oriented first and foremost to God. Prayer is the outflow of the heart. And if we begin to pray this way, this God-first kind of prayer, it should be because our hearts are oriented to God above all else. And let me tell you the reason why. The reason why our hearts should be oriented to God above all else is because God's heart is oriented to God above all else. The glorification of the name of the Lord is the most important thing in the world to God. It is his number one priority. He does everything that he does for the glory of his own name. Let me read some scripture to you where God has said this exact thing. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, that's a repetition, and you remember what that means in Hebrew, that's an emphasis. He really wants you to understand that it's for his sake. I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 48, 9 and 11. But I acted for the sake of my name, says God to Israel in Ezekiel 20, verse 9. Again in Ezekiel chapter 20. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. And that's, that's four or five. We could keep going. There, there's a hundred like this. Now, I know you may be thinking, but doesn't, doesn't God care about me? Doesn't God love me? Don't I register? And the answer is yes. Yes, of course you do. Remember, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he loved us and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us. When we were yet enemies, he made us his children. But that does not change the fact, brothers and sisters, that God's foremost love is for himself. 
Listen to the Lord explain this concept very clearly to the Israelites. Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. In the New Testament even, God tells us the main reason why he has provided forgiveness for our sins. 1 John 2.12 I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. It is right for the Lord to treat his name this way. It is good that the name of God is the priority of God. The name of God is the communication of all that is good and beautiful and true in this universe. It is light and life and joy, and it would be wrong of God. It would be sinful of God to ever let his name be treated as less than it really is. It is good and right that God treats the most valuable thing in the universe like it's the most valuable thing in the universe. And it would be wrong of God to let the most valuable thing in the universe be treated as if it were less than. Our hearts should be oriented to God because God's heart is oriented to God. This sermon series has been some of the most difficult sermons I've ever had to write and preach. And it's not because of the material. It's because of how much God's word has cut me to the quick and convicted me of my sin as I read and study and write and pray and even preach. I care so little for the name of God. The name of the Lord is so low on my list of priorities. When I get out of bed in the morning and I think about all the things that I care about, God's name is so far from the front of my mind all too often. At my best, I really do care about the name of the Lord being glorified, magnified, that it would be hallowed in the earth, and I spend my life towards that end. But the truth is, is that all too quickly, hallowed be thy name, turns into, what about me? What about my name? What about my glory, my comfort? Can you identify with me here? If you were to sit down and kind of write out the list of maybe three, four, five things that you care most about in the world, I don't mean things that in theory, if you were the perfectly virtuous person that you'd like to believe that you are, Right? And I don't mean that with you. I mean like if you're being honest with yourself and you write down the three or four things that you care most about in the world, the things that it's kind of obvious if you look at your bank account, the way you spend your time, the things you think about, the things you pray about, if you were to write them down, where do you think God's name would register on that list? Would it register at all? Do you ever... Pray prayers like the psalmist in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, <coughs> and all that is within me. All that is within me. Bless his holy name. Do you ever say with Daniel, blessed be the name of the Lord forever? Do you ever say with Psalm 145, 
Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Is your heart's greatest desire that every creature bless his holy name? I think the first step to learning how to pray the way that Jesus teaches us to pray here in his school of prayer is to begin with repentance. To confess that we care more about our own names than the name of the Lord. To confess that the name of the Lord is not as glorious and awesome to us as it should be, that it's not hallowed on the earth and it's not hallowed in our own lives. If we want to pray this prayer with sincerity, we must ask God to increase in us a passion for his name. That's the only way that we can pray like this and not be hypocrites. Jesus doesn't care if you close your eyes and say these words. Anybody can do that. Jesus cares that when you close your eyes and open your mouth that you really mean it, that your heart's greatest desire is that his name would be hallowed on the earth. And he needs to help us with that. We must ask God to help us care about his name as much as he cares about his name. God's supreme mission in the universe is the broadcasting of the glory of his name. And that should mean something for how we live our lives as his children, which we learned that we are last week, which leads us to point number four, the people of God. So we already learned this morning that to be holy means to be other, separate, distinct, and that's what God is. But you should also know that when God possesses something, that thing also becomes holy. So you see this as God communicates with Moses at the burning bush. God tells Moses to remove his sandals because the ground where he's standing is hallowed ground. It's holy ground. Well, why is it hallowed? It's because that's where God is. God has taken possession of that ground and he has made it holy by his presence. For an object to be holy is for it to be set aside, to be especially used by God for his particular purposes. Think about your grandma and her china set. It was there in that cabinet, ever looming and ominous. You can't touch it, go near it, and you can only bring it out when very special people are here for dinner. You know, it's, it's a holy set of dishes used for your grandma's very particular set of dinner parties. Maybe you had a different grandma than me. Prophets were holy. Not because they were totally and completely morally clean, quite the opposite in fact. They were holy because they were set apart to communicate God's word. And you can see this theme of holiness all throughout the Old Testament. The Levites were holy because they were the tribe that was set apart from all the other tribes of Israel to do God's priestly services. The tabernacle was holy. The holy of holies was holy. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Okay. Uh, amongst all the other holy rooms in the temple, this was the holiest room in the temple. The Sabbath was holy. It was a day set apart from all the other days to belong specially to God and to us for rest. The same thing is true now in the New Covenant era, era where we as Christians celebrate the Lord's Day, right? The day specifically belongs to us to worship God and his resurrected son, Jesus Christ. It should be a preeminent day for you. It should be a special day for you. Everything else should fall away except for coming together, gathering with God's people, 
singing God's word, listening to God's word preached and read, and participating in the Lord's table. The tithe was holy. That was the kind of money, the part of the money that you had or the resources that you had that you set apart for God and his purposes. Offerings were meant to be holy. And that's why they were supposed to be pure and unblemished because that was supposed to communicate something about the fact that they were set apart for God's special purposes. But most importantly for our lesson this morning, you need to understand that when God takes a people for himself, that people become holy. You see this from the mouth of God himself in Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. In Leviticus 20, thus you are to be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart to be mine. But this wasn't just true of Israel, God's old covenant people. This is also true of the church. Listen to the verse that we always read as we begin our members' meetings together. This is the same verse, nothing new. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Brothers and sisters, he's talking about you. You. If you belong to Jesus, you have been set apart from all the other peoples of the earth and you belong to God. You are his special, chosen, holy people. But that verse has a little bit more to say. There's a second half to this verse. I'm going to read it to you, but before I read it to you, I want you to listen with this question in mind, trying to answer this question. Why did God set us apart and make us holy? For what purpose? Okay, here's the second half. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God makes us holy so that we might hallow his name so that we might make his name great in the earth. One of the main ways that God will hollow his name on this earth is through his people. The main instrument, if there's like a job that needs to get done, his name will be hollowed. The church is the hallowing tool. It's the instrument that God uses to accomplish this purpose. We are the answer to the prayer that we pray. You might have even missed how this concept, this idea is built into the very fabric of the Great Commission. But now that you've been sitting here and listening to this for like 45, 50 minutes, right? You kind of have this full orb theology. Listen again with fresh ears to the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's teach them, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the Great Commission, we as God's people who have been set apart to proclaim the excellencies of his name have been commissioned by God, given the authority of God through the Spirit of God to go out and broadcast his name to the ends of the earth. 
to all nations, all peoples, all tribes, all tongues. And we carry out this mission in light of our great salvation. The fact that we have been saved fills our hearts with joy and gratitude and it leads us to say along with the psalmist in Psalm 83, 18, may they know that you alone whose name is Yahweh are most high over all the earth. Now, for the church, there's a little twist here. Just a little twist. The primary name that we proclaim is no longer Yahweh. It is Yeshua. Translated into English, that's Jesus. Translated literally, it means Yahweh saves. In Jesus, God has given us our supreme reason for hallowing his holy name. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, in his name, under his authority to come and live a perfect life, to die on the cross to pay the price for our sins, and to redeem us and make us his holy nation. And because of that, we bless the name of Jesus. We hallow the name of Jesus. We say along with Luke 1.68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. We praise him in light of who he is, and we can see who he is in light of what he's done for us. He's come to earth, and he saved us. Because of what Jesus has done, the author of Philippians says this, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names. In light of this great redemption, we sing along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, as she sings these words in the Gospel of Luke. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. We declare with the psalmist in Psalm 111, He has sent redemption to his people. Holy and awesome is his name. And then as we overflow with passion for the glory of God's mighty name, we go out to the nations and we proclaim this great salvation in the matchless name of Jesus, the only name under heaven and earth by which men might be saved. The name of God is not a label. It's not a title. It is an identity. And the apex of God's identity is seen in Jesus Christ as he comes and brings us redemption. And he still has much saving left to do. If you go on to joshuaproject.net, you'll find that there are nearly 3,133,000,000 unreached people on this earth. 3 billion. 133 million. So there's still a lot of work left for us to do as people whose primary passion in life should be that God's name be hallowed in all the earth amongst all the peoples of the earth. But before we do any of that, before we talk about raising funds and sending missionaries and boards and organizations and buying plane tickets and suffering and all the things, the great and mighty things that go along with accomplishing this end,
We have to learn how to pray from the heart. Hallowed be your name. Before closing, I want to call your attention to just one more thing this morning. If you weren't here for our sermon series, uh, one of our, excuse me, our sermon series in the book of Malachi, we spent some time in Malachi chapter 1, and in, verses, uh, in verse 11 we read this. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. For my name will be great among the nations. In the mind of the God who declares the beginning from the end, there is not even a hint of doubt that this prayer will be answered with a mighty and thunderous yes and amen. God will absolutely ensure that his name is glorified amongst all the creatures that he has created. His name will be glorified whether you like it or not, whether you participate or not. His name will be glorified by those who are suffering in eternity under his wrath in hell. Every person will bow the knee. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, his mighty name, is supreme over all the other names. Some people will glorify God in heaven as they enjoy him forever in the face of his son, Jesus. In light of this reality, I think every person in this room is pressed to make a decision. Every person in this room should feel pressure to consider whether or not they will exalt and glorify the name of God as a conquered foe or as his child. If you have any questions about what it looks like to follow Jesus and to be faithful in glorifying his name, I'd encourage you to come up and talk to me, one of our elders, or really any member of the church after service. Let me pray. Father, words hardly seem adequate after your word has done so much work in our hearts. We feel like there maybe is nothing that we can say that will fully capture all that needs to be said about who you are and what you've done for us. And so, Father, we just delight that there is grace even for that. We know that your spirit helps us when we don't know what to say, so we pray that your spirit would pray powerfully through us now as we praise your holy name. Amen.